Hey everyone, welcome back to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. As always, I'm your host, Mike Wong. This is my quick response to the second episode of Discovery's fourth season, titled Anomaly. As per usual, if you wish to avoid spoilers about this episode, do not proceed any further. Okay, assuming you're still with us, in this brand new hour of Star Trek, Book, along with a holographic projection of Stamets, flies into the Gravitational Anomaly's accretion disk to gather precious data about what the anomaly is and how it works, so that the Federation can predict its behavior and prevent any further loss of life. While their mission is a success, we don't actually get a lot of answers about the anomaly in this episode, which will leave me with the opportunity today to speculate wildly in my question segment. But first, here's my think and feel. At the beginning of the episode, Stamets et al. hypothesize that the anomaly is a system of binary black holes radiating gravitational waves as they circle each other, spiraling closer and closer until they merge. What exactly is this anomaly? We're not certain. We know it's there. We know it's moving, but we can't quite get a handle on what it is. Our current theory is that it's a roving binary black hole. We believe the two black holes are merging, creating gravitational waves in the process. This hypothesis proves unfounded once the crew acquires more data. But the scientific basis for this entire episode just screams Dr. Aaron McDonald, who is one of the Star Trek science consultants and... I'm proud to say, a previous guest on this show. In episode 80 of Strange New Worlds, Erin told us about her PhD, working on LIGO, the Nobel Prize-winning project that detected gravitational waves for the first time in human history. One thing that raised my eyebrows during this episode was how Book's ship rode a gravitational wave like a kite catches a gust of air during his epic escape from the anomaly in the episode's climax. I was a little surprised because I didn't know that gravitational waves worked like that. I always pictured gravitational waves as the type of wave that made things oscillate perpendicular to the direction of the wave's propagation. You know, kind of like how a buoy in the water bobs up and down vertically but doesn't get swept permanently in a certain direction within the plane of the ocean itself. Of course, with gravitational waves, it's space-time that's oscillating, stretching and compressing the distances between objects, but in a cyclic fashion that doesn't really herd them along through space. But a quick glance at the gravitational wave literature, which I honestly 
don't really look at at all, showed me that gravitational waves can indeed push things. This happens most dramatically when binary black holes, each spinning in a different direction, merge. The linear momentum radiated during the merger of spinning black holes can, in theory, impart a velocity of thousands of kilometers per second, enough to kick the final coalesced black hole out of the galaxy altogether. In fact, the technical term for such an event is a superkick. <laughs> <laughs> which is a word I'd previously only thought to use when describing Michelle Yeoh's fight scenes. Well, obviously, when it comes to general relativity, my expertise pales in comparison to Dr. Erin McDonald's. So you bet I'll be asking her more about this episode when I inevitably invite her back to Strange New Worlds at the end of Season 4. Until then, hang tight. So let's move on to my feel. Much will be said across the Trek podcasting community about the themes of grief, mourning, and survivor's guilt as personified by Book's character and portrayed so powerfully by actor David Ajala. I won't step on everyone else's toes. Instead, I'll focus on a small scene that meant a lot to me, which was the scene where Captain Burnham welcomes Captain Saru back aboard the Discovery. I loved the way the two characters studied Giorgio's telescope, now perched in Burnham's ready room, when Saru said, Our mentor, Philippa Giorgio, knew the value of another set of trusted eyes especially in times of crisis. I asked you to be those eyes for me when I became captain. Now, it would be my honor, and indeed my privilege, to do the same for you as your number one, if you'll have me. That visual callback to Giorgio's telescope was utterly fantastic, beaming me all the way back to Discovery's season one premiere, where the old optical scope gave the crew new eyes when sensors were useless. Burnham and Saru have come such a long way since the Vulcan Hello, where we saw them basically stepping on each other's toes, vying for primacy in Captain Giorgio's eyes. Then Chief Science Officer Saru would approach dangerous situations with a very cautious stance, while then First Officer Burnham preferred to dive in headfirst. They couldn't have been more diametrically opposite in their appetites for risk. And this caused no small amount of friction between the two. At one point, Burnham insinuated that Saru was a coward to let the unknown remain hidden. And later, Saru accused Burnham of being a dangerous element. Fast forward a thousand years, 
And these two have grown and matured into one of the best duos in Star Trek, in my humble opinion. They're still so different, but they've learned to cherish their difference, to admire it, to respect it to the fullest, and welcome it. Their friendship is emblematic of what Star Trek is all about at its core. The hope that we can grow closer and stronger, not in spite of our differences, but because of them. Now, my question. At the end of the episode, Tilly reveals to Saru that the anomaly is behaving, well, anomalously. He did find something. The reason the distortions got worse, even though Discovery held its position. So this is the anomaly when we arrived. And this is it after we left. It changed direction? What could have caused that? That's the thing. There is nothing in my understanding of astrophysics that can explain it. But we gathered this data in order to predict its path. Are you saying we cannot do that? No, sir, we can't. We could go anywhere at any time, and we may not have any kind of warning at all. Much like Dr. Aaron McDonald, Lieutenant Sylvia Tilly is no slouch when it comes to astrophysics. So why can't she predict the anomaly's future trajectory? After all, a massive gravitational object should be pretty easy to track as it wanders through space. Despite its gnarly, chaotic interior, far away from the anomaly, it should simply appear as a point mass responding predictably to the tugs and pulls of other massive objects in the galaxy via the laws that Newton worked out. So what's causing all the trouble? What could possibly be ruining Tilly's ability to bring the standard laws of astrophysics to bear on the anomaly? Now maybe those gravitational wave superkicks, you know, the ones that Book rode out, have something to do with it. If those waves carry linear momentum and occur at randomly spaced intervals in time and in random directions, then it would be as if the anomaly were a damaged ship, firing its thrusters randomly, plotting a chaotic course through space. So the real question is, what drives that apparent randomness? Here's a wild suggestion. It's my question for this week. What if the anomaly is alive? <laughs> okay, full disclosure, I stole this crazy and potentially brilliant idea from Dr. James T. Keen's bingo sheet. Every season we play bingo, where we fill our boards with wild predictions about the show. Anyway, here's where I'm going with this. When describing the physics of living things, some researchers turn to the concept of emergence. Emergence is scientific speak for the way that large systems exhibit new properties that can't necessarily be predicted by the properties of their individual components. For example, 
nothing about the properties of an individual water molecule, H2O, will tell you about the laws of fluid dynamics, the way a river flows, for instance, which emerges when a bunch of water molecules get together. Similarly, nothing about an individual bird will tell you how a flock of starlings will swarm through the sky in a rhythmic, entrancing dance. My friend and colleague Dr. Stuart Bartlett likes to explain emergence this way. He says, imagine a dog, Porthos maybe, knowing precisely the positions and velocities of all the atoms that make up that dog, and modeling that collection of particles forward in time will tell you a lot less about what the dog will do next than simply knowing that the dog is hungry <laughs> and wants some cheese. In other words, a dog's trajectory is much more than just F equals ma, force equals mass times acceleration, Newton's second law. If you tried to explain a dog's motion like you would the motion of a billiard ball, the dog would appear to move chaotically, just like the anomaly in Star Trek Discovery does when it is described astrophysically. So fluid dynamics, swarming behavior, Hunger, these are all emergent properties that mean nothing at the level of fundamental physics. You can't describe them simply by knowing Einstein's equations. You can't build them up from quantum mechanics. This is why sometimes scientists say that we have yet to discover the new physics of life. So what if Tilly has not yet realized that certain new physics governs this anomaly. What if the anomaly responds to stimuli, such as discoveries trespassing, in ways that you can't simply derive from first principles? If the anomaly is alive, then just like Stuart's dog, a rigorous treatment of fundamental astrophysics may not tell you what it will do next. From an astrophysics perspective, you might think it's behaving counterintuitively, erratically, even impossibly, until you realize that maybe it's just hungry. <laughs> All right, by now, I bet half of you are rolling your eyes. <laughs> but hey, a living gravitational anomaly? Stranger things have happened on Star Trek. All right, everyone, that's all for now. Take care, enjoy episode three, and I'll see you out there.